A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. In a sudden flash, it all comes clear. It's a eureka moment, an epiphany. Hi, I'm Marcus Smith, host of the Constant Wonder Podcast. The world offers marvel, meaning, and mystery around every single corner. In nature, art, science, culture, history, we talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day. Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts. Just before you listen to today's episode, this is a quick message to remind you that if you like what you hear, you can help support History Hack, which is run entirely by volunteers using our Patreon account. There are links on all of our episodes. Or if a subscription is not your thing, you can also now drop us a line on Kofi, which is just the equivalent of buying us a drink. So if you hear an episode, you like it and you want to chip in just once, then you can do that too. Thank you. Hello and welcome to History Hack. A little bit of a treat for you today. This is your girl Charlie flying solo for the first time. So be be nice to me, be kind. I am joined by a fabulous guest who's going to uh, start my History Hack solo journey at the beginning. And we're going to start in ancient Rome. I'm joined today by Dr. Ellery Cousins. She's a Roman history lecturer at Lancaster University with a specialist interest in all things Roman Britain and Roman religion, which she has very kindly agreed to come and talk to me about today. Hello, Ellery. Hi, very nice to be here, Charlie. <laughs> I'm so excited to have you. And as I mentioned before we started recording, I am a novice when it comes to ancient Rome, but I'm very, very excited about it. Great. Well, as far as I'm concerned, I'm biased, obviously, but I think religion is one of the best ways into it. Um, so hopefully, hopefully we can make you both a novice and a passionate new fan. Oh, fantastic. Yes, well, my, my extensive knowledge from iClaudius, uh, I am I'm well, well ready for this. So I, I understand I've given you a very, very big topic to cover. So to get us up to speed, what characterizes Roman religion and how does that differ from what we think of as religion today? Well, I think one of the first things that we need to realize when we're talking about Roman religion is that actually the Romans didn't really have a word for religion. Um, obviously, there are lots of Latin words that have to do with aspects of behavior that we would now call religious, um, but there's no sort of one single encompassing Latin word that means everything that we sort of bring to the table when we say religion. Um, so that's kind of one way to start is to think about, okay, well, what actually are the words in Latin that have to do with religion? Uh, it's also then very important to think about how, what are we bringing to the table with that word religion? What are the sort of associations for us about what religion is? And, and are those paralleled in what we're seeing in antiquity? And actually in a lot of cases, um, they aren't. Mm -hmm. um, so uh, to start with that kind of aspect, um, one of the, uh, you know, for us, when we think about religion, probably for a lot of people, one of the things you think if you're thinking about religious, um, you know, uh, 
religious belief is in fact that question of belief, right? That if you belong to a particular religion, that means that you believe certain things, right? And that part of your identity as, um, as for example, if, if someone is Christian, right, that they believe certain things about the nature of Christ, um, about uh, the nature of saints and all the rest of it. Mm. Um, and that you have, you know, this sort of a creed. A lot of religions nowadays as well, kind of going along with that question of belief, right, have um, at their heart sacred texts yeah. um, that are sort of really important uh, to, um, you know, that are sort of contain kind of religious knowledge, contain religious stories, um, are seen as kind of conveying truth about the world um, through the lens of religion. Both of those things hardly apply at all to how religion works in the ancient world. Uh, there's no kind of set list of things that you have to believe um, or that you do believe. Uh, there's no very little kind of parallels to sort of sacred texts. There's no equivalent to the Bible or the Quran or anything like that. But rather, um, you know, people are living in a polytheistic society, right? So there's loads and loads of gods. They just think of the world as, as filled with the filled with the divine, filled with all of these different gods. And what religious behavior is in the Roman world then is it's about negotiating that relationship with those gods. So it's all about one of the things that um, scholars of Roman religion tend to stress is that rather than belief necessarily being central to Roman religion, it is there to some degree, but just not, you know, central in the way it is to a lot of modern religions. We're dealing with a world in which ritual and sort of ritual action is really sort of central to how people engage with the divine. So it's all about not what you think, not what you believe, not even how you behave, right? There's not even sort of, a, you know, you've got to be a good person, which is another big part of a lot of religions today. Rather, it's about are you performing the correct rituals in the correct way, and that's going to then please the gods. And that is then kind of reflected in the words that we do have in Latin that have to do with religion as we kind of think about it. The first is, um, rather confusingly, the Latin word from which we get religion, which is the Latin word religio, uh, which we would be tempted to translate just as religion. It doesn't mean that. It means, in fact, a much more narrow concept, this concept of correct ritual. Um, uh, of, you know, sacrificing in the right way, um, saying the right words when you're praying to the gods, asking them for kind of favor and those sorts of things. Um, so it is this very sort of narrow, uh, much narrower than everything that comes under the heading of religion and all about correct ritual behavior, doing the right things in the right order and please the divine. Um, another Latin word that has to do with religion, that again, we have a word that comes from it, um, is the word pietas, which is, of course, where we get our word piety from. Mm. And in this instance, actually, the Roman definition of pietas is perhaps a bit broader than our definition of piety, right? Our definition of piety is all about sort of um, uh, humbleness towards, go towards gods, towards the divine um, uh, um you know, appropriate religious behavior, good behavior, it's sort of bound up in all of those sorts of things. Uh, the Latin word pietas does have those connotations. It's about the respect that you owe towards the gods, but it's also very often about the respect that you owe towards anyone, whether a god or not, that has kind of authority over you. So children are expected to have pietas towards their, their parents, for example. And um, 
you know, a certain amount of pietas towards, say, the emperor or your or your social patron in society, right? So it's all about kind of hierarchy and the respect that you owe to people above you in the hierarchy, which includes God. So this idea uh, of, of sort of ritual and, and respect towards the gods, um, that I think, and, and the sort of absence of kind of sacred texts, less important, you know, you're not sort of, no one's sort of saying, oh, I am polytheistic, I am pagan because I believe X, Y, Z, right? There aren't those kinds of categories. They take for granted that the world is full of gods, that they might choose to worship or might choose not to worship, but they're not going to be believing in one god thing, and I don't believe in that other god. It's just about, am I going to worship this god? Am I going to engage in these correct rituals towards them? Gosh, and they were they were quite attainable, weren't they, to to the Roman people in that they were they were gods that that weren't that far removed. So Julius Caesar, he thought he was descent from a god, and and then of course it was Augustus who became a god. And they were talking about should should his wife also be deified? So this this idea of real people. Absolutely. And, and, and a sort of hierarchy of divinity, shall we say, right? So at the top, you've got these really powerful gods that are the names that we all know from school, you know, Jupiter, Minerva, um, Neptune, all of these kinds of deities, right then down to, you know, your local spring will have a deity, right? And a sort of nymph attached to it or a spirit attached to it. Your household will have a spirit attached to it. And then yes, as we kind of move into the Roman empire, humans start becoming gods and the emperors and the imperial family. And this starts to be, you know, one of the ways in which they're uh, bolstering their imperial power. For me, one of the things I find really interesting about um, working on Roman religion is about using religion to understand Roman society and understanding how pe- how Romans are using religion to construct their societies. And um, everything kind of surrounding, turning the emperor into this kind of semi-divine figure who is descended from divine figures and is himself going to become a divine figure after his death, right? What an amazing way to kind of legitimize your reign, <laughs> legitimize your rule. And it's something that, you know, later once christianity kind of takes off in the empire that needs to be renegotiated right you can no longer be a god instead you're owing your power to divine favor right that god has kind of anointed you as as ruler which of course is something that then continues for a very long period afterwards um but not quite as powerful as genuinely you know i'm going to become a god yeah it's amazing i mean we we all love the queen but can you imagine? I mean, it's it just blows your mind to think that they were that close. Um, when, when we're talking about Rome, we're in effect discussing an empire and it's spread across continents. So how much diversity of religious experience was there under the Roman Empire? And how does religion in Rome compare to, say, Roman Britain, where 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 you hang out a lot of the time? <laughs> Oh, it's absolutely huge. And this, again, is one of the things that is so much fun about studying the Roman Empire, right? I think people tend to associate when they think the Roman Empire, they think the city of Rome. Um, And those are the kinds of associations that come up. Uh, But as you say, this is an empire that's spread that is going from modern day Scotland to modern day Syria, um, from modern day Hungary to the Arabian Peninsula to the North Africa, right? Just this incredible sort of span. And There are commonalities that we see in terms of how religion 
operates in the Roman Empire. Um, but for example, the imperial cult, uh, the worship of the emperor, right? That's something that we see all across the empire. That's something that's really kind of binding communities together. Um, but because it is so diverse and because, the, you know, in each different place, Rome isn't stepping into a vacuum, right? Roman power isn't stepping into a vacuum. Roman religious ideas aren't stepping into a vacuum. Rather, they're stepping into places that have themselves very, very deep and rich local histories. And that then means that everywhere that we're looking across the empire, um, you're seeing very kind of localized versions, essentially, um, of, you know, the overall kind of flavor, right? So one example that I really love to bring in um, is, is the Parthenon in Athens, right? Which we think of as a classical Greek temple, a fifth century BC temple, right? From that age, that glorious age of Athens as, as this democratic city. The Parthenon remains a temple right through antiquity. In fact, it then becomes a church and it becomes a mosque. It has a very long <laughs> history as a religious space. Um, but under the Roman Empire, it's still a really important temple and it's got all of these associations as a temple of Athena, the patron saint of Athens in the Roman period, but the Parthenon and the Acropolis is also being littered with Roman period monuments. Um, statues of emperors get, um, get set up, we think, in the Parthenon. Uh, a small temple to the imperial cult gets built on the Parthenon, right? And so, you know, it's still the Parthenon, it's still this Greek temple. Um, but what's then happening there in the Roman period is, uh, you know, in dialogue with the fact that Athens is now part of the Roman Empire. And what does that mean? And, and where, you know, these other religious ideas that are kind of coming in um, from other parts of the Roman Empire. Likewise, if we turn, you know, to, to the West, to the areas that I work on, very similar, right? Um, traditions from the Iron Age, uh, coupled with, and it's not just sort of pre-Roman traditions, right? It's then as the empire continues over the course of centuries, local people are always adapting and, and sort of responding um, to ideas and gods and practices from elsewhere and, and changing them to suit their local circumstances, right? So it's all about how local people um, are, are fitting themselves into this empire and, and making making these, these things kind of work for them and their communities as it were. Was it part of the part of the sort of conquest to impart religion? Because I know that they were they were very scared of Druids, weren't they, the Romans? So this is a really interesting question. And it um, for the most part, we see quite a lot of sort of live and let live, as it were. Right. With the exception of things like um, the imperial cult, although there that's a really uh, again, it varies massively depending on which part of the empire. And so, so emperor worship, that's actually not something that the Romans invent. That's something that's invented in the Eastern Mediterranean, in Greek cities in the Eastern Mediterranean, um, because it's, it's, again, something that they were doing before the Roman conquest. It's something that they were doing to the Hellenistic kings, the successors of Alexander the Great. They were, you know, in, sort of giving them kind of divine honours, worshipping them as sort of semi-gods. And then when the Romans conquered them, they, they are dealing with this kind of new set of leaders by, in the same way that they used to, right? They're sort of turning them into gods. And the Romans, to begin with, are really kind of hesitant about that. Um, and then slowly start to see kind of the advantages here for the emperor of, of, of having kind of divine ruler. 
um, divine right, divine nature. And we then see the Romans doing the opposite in the Western Empire, right? Bringing emperor worship to the West and sort of imposing it on local communities uh, to begin with, with potentially fraught um, complications. So for example, the Boudican revolt in Britain, the Roman historian Tacitus tells us that one of the, the causes of the Boudican revolt, one of the things that was really resented by the British population was in fact, the fact that there was a temple to the Emperor Claudius built in Colchester, the capital of the province at the time, um, and that local people were having to pour their money into the temple um, and being forced to sort of serve as priests. And this was a real source of resentment and one of the reasons why the Boudican, why Boudicca was able to kind of spark this revolt. Um, so, so there's that element that, you know, that they're for the most part, not imposing kind of worship of particular gods, but but emperor worship is perhaps a particular thing. And for the most part, they're fine for people to kind of worship their own local gods. But then there are a few instances um, in different parts of the empire where certain religious groups, for whatever reason, do spark significant insecurity on the part of the Roman authorities that then do, you know, for the consequences um, of, uh, of making an empire nervous. Um, as you say, Druids, and there it's probably to do with religion and authority, right? That these are, we don't know a lot about who exactly Druids were, how they operated in kind of um, Gallic, what is now France um, society or British society. But as far as we can tell from our sources, right? These are powerful figures um, with religious authority that were potentially becoming a focus for um, revolt and rebellion against the Romans, right? And so it's, again, it's about the ways in which religion and power are intertwined. Um, other groups that come under sort of suspicion like this, um, uh, you know, Jewish communities are another really sort of good example for, of this, that um, uh, uh, and we can, you know, there it's understandable as well that, okay, monotheistic religion, is harder to kind of integrate into this kind of polytheistic system where everyone has their gods that they worship, but you're also paying homage to the gods of the Roman state and, and, and to the emperor, right? And, and also religion, they're binding together a community in a way that forms very, very strong community ties that then might allow the community to organize resistance against Rome, right? Amazing. Um, so, so it's those kind in a sudden flash, it all comes clear. It's a eureka moment, an epiphany. Hi, I'm Marcus Smith, host of the Constant Wonder podcast. The world offers marvel, meaning, and mystery around every single corner. In nature, art, science, culture, history, we talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day. Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts. Kinds of it's it's those kinds of stories where sort of religion is is binding people together in a way that's perhaps enabling kind of resistance to the Roman system. It's where we really start to see kind of um, the Romans giving a side eye essentially to, to some form of other religious behavior. Amazing. This this leads really nicely into my next question. You're talking about about different communities. So I mentioned that your your expertise is in Roman Britain. Um, are there any examples of how different communities in the Roman Empire used their religion in, in different ways within Roman Britain? 
Oh, so many. And as I said, this is one of the best ways that we've got, I think, into how communities are operating because religion is such a laden part of life, right? It's, it is so laden with symbolism, it's laden with signifiers, it's, um, it's potent, it's what brings people together. Um, so just to give one example, uh, we could give endless examples here, but one example of a temple that I really love that, uh, you know, allows us to think both about how religious communities are coming together in Britain, but also how those are working to reinforce kind of community ties and functioning within a community. Um, and that's the, the temple to Mithras, which is called a Mithraeum, temp temples of the god Mithras, known as Mithraea or Mithraeum in the singular, um, from Carabra Fort, which is one of the forts on Hadrian's Wall. Um, and the forts on Hadrian's Wall were uh, manned by garrisons that were drawn from the conquered peoples of the Roman Empire, known as auxiliary units. So, so you've got the legions that are kind of the Roman citizens, the crack troops of the Roman army, the auxiliary units that are drawn from the conquered peoples um, of the empire. That's who we have serving on Hadrian's Wall. Um, so men that, you know, uh, at least originally these units would have been coming from other parts of the empire and, and, um, and sort of based on the final, final frontier, as it were, of the Roman world. Um, and at Karograph, we have a lot of evidence for sort of religious activity within the military community. We've got a couple of different temples. And one of them, as I said, is this temple to the god Mithras. Now, Mithras is a really fascinating god. Um, he, uh, he sort of exemplifies that kind of um, diversity and sort of almost kind of globalizing aspect of the Roman Empire in that he probably, well, he definitely has his origins as the Persian god Mitra, who's a really important deity in, um, in sort of Zoroastrianism. Uh, and then he's, at some point, we don't really understand the circumstances, it's kind of imported to the Roman Empire and turned into very much a Roman god and a Roman cult. Um, uh, a cult that um, they're often referred to perhaps a little bit inaccurately, but it's a kind of, it's an evocative phrase. They're often referred to as mystery cults. Okay. And these are cults in the Roman empire where um, basically you have to be initiated into the worship of, the, uh, of this God. Um, so you, uh, you know, not everyone knows what happens in the cult. Not everyone has kind of access to the sort of secret knowledge that initiates possess. Um, they tend to be sort of smaller communities we don't often tend to know an awful lot about the rituals that went on in them because our textual sources don't tell us much because they were secret. So we're often having to kind of try and glean what was happening through archeology, span uh, through images, through, you know, sort of iconography and sculpture from these temples. Um, but basically as far as you can tell with Mithras, well, what we do know is that uh, cult communities to Mithras, they tended to be quite small. Um, temples to Mithras also tended to be very small because it would just sort of be the kind of local cult community. It was an all-male cult, so only kind of men could join the cult of Mithras. Um, and uh, it does seem to be quite popular in military communities, especially in the Western Empire. It's not only soldiers that worship Mithras. Sometimes you'll hear Mithras being called a soldier god. He's not. He's really popular in cities as well. Very, very popular in the city of Rome. But we do see temples to him in these kind of fort settings. Um, temples to Mithras, so one of the kind of key myths as far as we can tell about this god is that um, he... Uh, he 
was involved in this kind of primordial fight of good and evil, sort of right at the dawn of time, um, in which he slays this primordial bull, who sort of represents the forces of evil in a cave. Um, and uh, as a result, because this cave is kind of really central to sort of Mithraic mythology, Mithraea, these temples to Mithras, often try and tend to recreate a kind of cave-like environment. A few of them are actually in caves, others are sort of semi-subterranean, so they're dark spaces, um, and uh, they're spaces that kind of play with sort of the forces of darkness and light. So, you know, that's just kind of setting the scene for sort of what a Mithraeum is and what the kind of environment it is. So the Mithraeum at Karabroth is really typical in this respect. It's a very sort of simple rectangular building, um, sunk a little bit into the ground, just outside of the fort at Karabroth. Uh, and it was excavated in the 1950s. Um, and the excavations were incredibly detailed for the time and found a huge amount of evidence that allowed us to sort of um, recreate some of the aspects of what was happening in this temple and think then about how, um, how that was functioning uh, sort of in relationship to kind of the military community. So things that were found, for example, at this temple, um, quite a lot of burnt pine cones. So you can imagine, right, that these were being burnt and the smell of them and the kind of incense of them. And we know that pine cones are very often being used in, uh, in rituals in Roman religion, um, possibly even the color of them, right? The sort of, you can imagine the kind of sap crackling and in this dark space. Uh, evidence of, of sacrifice of animals that we often see in sort of feasting contexts in Mithraic temples, um, uh, roosters um, and goats. And then that sacrifice actually being incorporated into the structure of the temple. Um, so deposits of kind of cockerel bones in the floor of the temple. Uh, the a Mithraic temple basically feasting was very important um, in Mithraic ritual. And so you have within these little rectangular temples, you have these, these benches along the side where presumably the kind of initiates and the participants in the court would lie and sort of feast and kind of have a ritual meal, essentially. Um, and in the wattle and daub of those benches um, were woven cockerel bones uh, and other sorts of animal bones. And probably what this is, is that, you know, sacrifices associated with the construction of the temple are then woven into the fabric of the temple. Um, so kind of perpetuating the power, essentially, of that sacrifice. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. 
J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Being performed. Um, we have these, you can imagine the sort of scent of pine cones, you know, the, the sort of element of feasting, uh, other kind of ways in which light and darkness is being played within this temple. One of the altars, which I'll talk more about in a second, um, has an image of the god Mithras on it, a relief of him. He's wearing a solar crown, so a crown with kind of rays of the sun coming off of it. And this, um, this relief, this sort of little stone altar with this relief on it, um, the, the actual rays of the crown have been pierced. So they're, you know, um, they've been cut through to the back of the altar. And at the back of this altar is a little ledge where you could place a lamp. So you can imagine, you know, imagine it's pitch dark in this temple and someone places a lamp behind this altar, lights it, and then suddenly your God appears in front of you, right? With these rays of the sun kind of coming through, sort of piercing through, almost like stained glass. So that's the environment, right? This sort of very kind of careful environment where you're encountering the divine in this small community setting. How does this then relate to community, which was the, orig you know, the original point? How do we then relate to the military community? Well, when the Mithraeum was excavated, one of the things that was really very lucky, as I said, there was tremendously good preservation in this, in this temple. Um, the excavators found in situ, that is in the place where they had been in antiquity, at the head of the temple, three different altars to Mithras. Um, and altars are really important in Roman religion. You know, it's where you sort of put the sacrifice, the kind of um, sacrificial meat to the god. They're sort of the focal point for a lot of this all-encompassing ritual. Uh, and they're often, um, they're often inscribed with a dedication of who paid for the altar um, in response to, you know, sort of a vow that they made to the god that they would pay for an altar. And the three altars at the, uh, the head of this temple of Car uh, at Karabrav all were dedicated by um, commanding officers of the fort at Karabrav. So three different commanding officers of the fort at Karabrav. Now it's not just, it's not that only commanding officers worshiped Mithras at the fort of Karabrav, right? There probably would have been a kind of dozen to 15 initiates at any given time. But imagine how that's then reinforcing actually the hierarchy of the fort when these men are coming to worship Mithras in this setting, probably with the commanding officer there as well as an initiate to Mithras. And then they're sacrificing, staring the whole time at these, temp these altars that have been dedicated by the prefect in honor of the prefect. And, you know, the power of the of the cult and of and of the god and of these rituals that are kind of binding these men together in um, in a community is then probably helping to kind of reinforce the hierarchy and authority of the commanding officer. Right. So although it's not an official cult, although it's not like the Roman army is making these men worship Mithras, this is definitely a personal choice. It's still very much wrapped up in uh, in the community that they're living in and and in who has power in that community. And, and with religion kind of being used to reinforce that power. Gosh, that is so interesting. So he, he was very much a, a military god. Is there, was there any, um, any sort of barring 
to any gods based on class? Were there any gods that were you, know, you could only worship if you were a property owning, um, well-to-do family or, or were, were they completely open to everybody? They're pretty much open to everyone. If anything, it kind of goes the other way in that if you are um, a, a Roman citizen, not everyone that lived in the Roman Empire had Roman citizenship. Um, if you're a Roman citizen, there's at least in places like the city of Rome, might vary when you're out in the provinces, there's an expectation that you're worshipping in particular the gods that the Roman state also worships, that you do in fact have public sacrifices and things like that. Um, uh, that said, we see lots and lots of inscriptions from people that are definitely Roman citizens that are to very strange gods and you know the back of beyond with very strange names that we've never seen except on that one inscription. So that very much breaks down. Where there is in fact a, um, sort of class division. Uh, and this comes back to, you know, the role of religion in Roman society and the ways in fact it differs from how we think about religion now is um, when it comes to things like priesthoods and who has religious authority. So most Roman priesthoods were restricted on the basis of class so that, you know, you could only be a priest if you were of a certain status, if you were a magistrate in a town. People don't become priests as a kind of religious calling in the way that they would now, right? It's part and parcel of um, other types of kinds of um, magistracies and sort of a authority positions that we would now think of as secular or civic, right? Uh, that bound up in those, um, you'll also be a kind of um, priest of the town, uh, priest of, you know, priest of the state. Um, and so that's where the divisions lie. And, and you know, very often those are men, there are female priestesses of cults, but kind of the, the key priesthoods are, are held by men and held by elite men. So again, where does religious authority lie? It always tends to be about reinforcing um, the sort of social norms of society at large. And it's when in fact, that isn't the case that we again see discomfort on the part of the Roman authorities, right? So, so cults like the cult of Isis from Egypt, which becomes incredibly popular throughout the Roman empire. Um, women uh, had quite a bit of authority in the cult of Isis and we see continuously kind of discomfort on the part of the Roman authorities with the cult of Isis, partly probably as a result of the fact that who gets to be a priest or a priestess is slightly undermining um, the status hierarchies of Roman society as a whole. The, um, am I am I right that the only the only sort of calling available to women was the Vestal Virgins? Were there no, other... that's not true. Actually, I mean that's the kind of one that's that's really sort of most well known, right? That we kind of really think about. Um, so the Vestal Virgins, uh, really quite a small priesthood, in fact, in Rome. Um, six women at any given time, uh, but um, we see as you know. In terms of local cults at the local level, we see lots of sort of local priestesses. Um, priestesses play a big role in a lot of sort of the cults of female deities in the Greek East. Priestesses are also playing a role in the imperial cult. So we see priestesses to, you know, to people like Livia, the, the wife of Augustus, right? Um, and to other members of the, of the, the, um, the imperial family who are deified, um, uh, women who are deified, they will often then have priestesses. So there are in fact, um, there are in fact niches uh, for women to to fulfill these these sorts of functions. Yeah, that's really interesting. Uh, sign sign me up. 
by the way, to be a priest named <laughs> Olivia, I'm I'm well up for that. Um, <laughs> she was fabulous. So the subject of your first book was the temple to, and you have to correct me if I say this wrong, to Sulis Minerva. That is right. Yes, that's fabulous. the correct pronunciation. <laughs> Thank goodness for these Latinate languages. Um, and this is in Bath. Yes. What does this place tell us about local religion within an empire? So the sanctuary at Bath is probably one of the most um, extraordinary sites in Britain, right? I mean, there's a reason why uh, it's one of the sites that if people are touring around Britain looking at Roman sites, they'll probably have gone to Bath. They'll probably have seen the, the, the remains there. Um, the, the sanctuary there has a really sort of long and complex history. But if we're thinking about its role within empire, one of the things that's really sort of powerful and thought provoking is to think about the beginnings of the sanctuary. And, you know, as today, Bath was important in the Roman period because of the hot springs. Right. That was what was sort of bringing people to the site. That was what was kind of defining it. And the sanctuary there is very much a water sanctuary. And Sulis Minerva is a water goddess um, presiding over the hot springs. And we think we don't actually have a lot of direct evidence for this, but we've got quite a lot of circumstantial evidence um, that those hot springs were also being venerated in the pre-Roman period, that they were important in the Iron Age. We know that watery places are really important to kind of the religious imagination in the Iron Age. Um, there's, there's bits of evidence that, uh, that there was sort of ritual activity going on in Bath in the Iron Age. So probably we're dealing with a place that is a sacred landscape in the Iron Age, but very much a natural one, right? With not a lot of interventions, these sort of hot springs kind of bubbling up in a kind of marshy spring valley. Um, you can imagine the kind of steam rising from the mud and the greenery and all the rest of it. The Romans come in and in the late first century, so just a couple decades after the Romans conquered Southern Britain, possibly even sort of maybe less than a decade after the Boudican Revolt, which I mentioned earlier, right, this really traumatic event when tens of thousands of, of Roman inhabitants of Roman towns were killed, um, and then the revolt was bloodily put down by the Roman authorities. Um, we see then the foundation of the sanctuary at Bath. And... Uh, Essentially, they completely transform this landscape, right? They come in and the first thing that they do is they take the main hot spring at Bath, the King Spring, and they transform it from a natural place into a completely controlled environment. Um, a reservoir that is probably one of the most biggest engineering projects from the Roman period in Britain, just taming this massive, massive amount of hot water with concrete and lead. Um, thus allowing the rest of the sort of area to not be flooded anymore and to be built on. Um, at which point they then built, they then build um, a really classical style temple. So a temple that looks exactly like the sort of temple that you would find in the city of Rome itself with Corinthian columns, all this kind of architectural elaboration, a sculptured pediment, um, as Roman as Roman can be really, right? And next to that, they plonk the most Roman building of all time, which is a bathhouse, right? Probably the sort of quintessential Roman building. What did the Romans do with hot water while they bathe in it? Um, and so you go from having this very natural environment to something that is almost aggressively Roman. <laughs> and, you know, if we put that into the context of kind of what's happening in Britain at the time, um, archaeologists kind of used to look at Bath and they used to sort of say, maybe this is kind of a bit of a peace offering to the local population, right? Kind of bringing together of traditions, local sacred place, Roman traditions. 
I think when we look at that, this is not, you know, this is not a peace offering. This is a militaristic empire coming in and saying, what was yours is now ours, right? Really sort of stamping their mark. And we can see that too in um, the imagery of that sculptured pediment on the temple to Sulis Minerva. It's full of imagery that is related to Roman imperialism. It's got these winged victories standing on globes, which is this kind of quintessential image of Roman conquest and the fact that they're conquering the world. Um, it's got sort of piles of, um, uh, of, of, it's got sort of shields and, and helmets that are kind of recalling the ways in which Roman would, Romans would pile up the trophies of their enemies, the, the, the shields and sort of weaponry of their enemies. Um, uh, the, the center of the pediment, which is probably the most famous image from Roman Britain, um, a Gorgon who is a symbol of Minerva, um, this sort of uh, figure, a male Gorgon, in fact, a bath with snakes in his hair, um, in fact, very much echoes imagery from Rome uh, and from buildings that the Emperor Augustus himself had built. So it is, it's definitely sort of tied to kind of the temple there, but it also seems to be an imperial image as well. So all of this is kind of coming together in this kind of early phase at Bath to say, you know, heavy-handed Roman imperialism. But then what's really fascinating, you know, as I said, the sanctuary has a really long history. What's really fascinating is, okay, well, what then happens later, right? A century or so later, when everyone who kind of lived through that bloody period of conquest has died, right? Um, how are people then using the sanctuary? And at that point, we're seeing, you know, uh, Bath continues to be a very classical space, a very sort of space filled with classical architecture. But if we're looking at the rituals that people are using there um, and, and who we can sort of glean about who's engaging in those rituals, it looks to be a much more local population. And they seem to be kind of taking over the worship of Sulis Minerva um, in a way that once again is all about kind of local concerns. So one of the things that we, one of the rituals that we see at Bath um, is, a, is a form of engaging with the gods that we see in fact right across the Roman Empire. And that's... Um, uh, through these things that um, are conventionally called curse tablets, which are exactly what they sound like. They're little kind of tablets of, um, of lead or sort of mixtures of lead and tin on which um, uh, the worshiper has written essentially a curse against someone that has done wrong to them, asking for the God to punish them. Uh, and we get these all across the Roman Empire and across the Roman Empire, they have to do with, you know, um, success in the law courts or someone's been thwarted, their, you know, their lover has left them and all these kinds of things. Um, the British ones have a very particular flavor to them. They're <laughs> not just found at Bath, although one of the biggest corpuses is, is at Bath. Uh, Romano-British people, when they're writing curse tablets, for some reason, we don't really understand why, they're obsessed with petty theft. <laughs> Almost all the tablets in Britain are, so-and-so stole my cloak, can you punish them? or so-and-so stole my plow, can you punish them? This is what they're dealing with here. And these are the messages that we're seeing being deposited to see this. You know, someone stole this little amount of money from me, someone stole my cloak. Um, and it's local names, it's British names, they're writing in Latin, but with a kind of British spin to the dialect. Uh, and, you know, they're, they're throwing these into the hot spring at Bath, right? So they're throwing them into the kind of spiritual heart of the sanctuary watching these tablets kind of vanish into the earth as the message goes to the goddess. Um, and so at that point, they're probably not worrying so much about all of this imperial iconography on the temple pediment. 
It's about, okay, well, what can the goddess do for me today? You know, someone's taken my stuff. I don't have anyone else to turn to. I'm turning to her. I love that. You know that now it would be people moaning about the bins and that. (laughs) Yeah, some sort of terrible kind of neighborhood watch board, right? I mean, in some ways, the idea of kind of hurling these things into a into a hot spring at least then no one's seeing it and it's not necessarily you know kind of causing rancor they didn't know that we'd be you well you'd be enjoying picking through them you know all yeah. these years later it's like someone sort of going after our local facebook group in uh, in a thousand years <laughs> it's the glory of being a historian archaeologist isn't it that we're always kind of rummaging through all of this detritus from the past that the people that left it would be absolutely horrified and baffled by Oh, bless you. Yeah, completely mortified. You're basically going through their bins. Awful. Um, this is this is one of the things as as a newbie, as someone who's who's got a new interest in ancient Rome. One of the things that I love about this is it just seems that it almost feels like it should it should be done by now. It should be it should have been studied. It should be it should have been finished. But it just seems that that it's ever evolving and there's new stuff and new discoveries coming constantly. I mean, they, they found some slave quarters at Pompeii only last week. And this is really, really exciting to me as a newbie, but are there any new discoveries that you get particularly excited about? I mean, this is the glory of archeology, span right? That there is always so much to discover. And, you know, you mentioned Pompeii, uh, one of the things I always say when people say to me, haven't we found it all by now? Haven't we learned it all? Is, you know, people think of Pompeii as one of the most excavated places. Surely we know everything about Pompeii. Um, large portions of Pompeii are still unexcavated. And in fact, you know, Pompeii goes back to the fifth century BC. It was inhabited from sort of 600 years before the volcano erupted in 79 AD. Um, we've only really literally just begun to scratch the surface of those pre-79 AD layers, right? So even a place like Pompeii, there's a couple good centuries of excavation left there until we kind of find everything out. Um, and likewise, Britain. And uh, yes, new discoveries come up all the time um, that, uh, you know, don't necessarily sort of fundamentally reshape our thinking, but always are kind of adding detail, new fascination and new stories um, to what we've got here. One that was published recently that I absolutely love, it's kind of my new favorite temple to be honest, <laughs> um, is a temple that was published last year in the Antiquaries Journal uh, by um, three archeologists, Richard Henry, David Roberts, and Steve Roskams. Um, it's a temple that they call the South Wiltshire Temple. It's in South Wiltshire. Um, and this temple is absolutely amazing. And it's another example, you know, We've talked about the Mithraeum at Karabruf, which is this very simple rectangular space, but all about kind of darkness and recreating this cave-like environment. I've talked about the Temple of Sulis Minerva, that's this very classical temple, very much a Roman-style temple. Um, the South Wiltshire Temple is yet another type of temple. And it's a type of temple that's really common in uh, rural contexts in southern Britain and in Gaul and kind of other places around the Western Empire. Um, and uh, it's it's conventionally called a Romano-Celtic temple. Um, archaeologists don't really like the term Celtic that much anymore, but this is what it's kind of called. And basically, it consists of sort of um, one kind of s- simple square room, and then around it, uh, a kind of um, outside of the, the sort of square room or building, 
um, sort of concentric wall kind of running all around it. So there's the kind of an, an ambulatory. So if you can imagine kind of concentric square, that's what a Romano Celtic temple looks like. Um, and so, uh, you know, in terms of how people move around these spaces, it's very different to kind of a Roman temple where it's very frontal and you go up the steps and you enter this room where the cult statue is. Romano Celtic temples, because they seem to have this kind of ambulatory around them, right? People seem to be moving around the temple. Motion seems to be very important uh, to how people are engaging with these spaces. So the South Wiltshire Temple is a Romano Celtic temple. It was found, um, uh, in fact, through, through metal detecting. Wow. Um, through, through legal metal detecting and metal detectorists reporting as they absolutely should. And this is you know, um, put in a kind of public service announcement here for, for the portable antiquities scheme, um, which is a kind of national scheme where if people find artifacts from any period, they report it to the PAS, they, they get to keep the artifacts. Um, uh, but then that information about the artifacts you know, gets put into a database so archaeologists can use it for research. And there was a particular density of Roman finds, essentially, that were being found by metal detectors. So these archaeologists went out and kind of investigated this space and found this temple. Um, it's, it's part of a broader landscape where people were living and, and, and sort of working for, for millennia. There's kind of Neolithic to Bronze Age to Iron Age to Roman activity kind of in the vicinity of this temple, um, including in the Roman period, uh, some quite extensive kind of iron working activity that's going on about 200 meters away. Um, and so, okay, well, why then is it my favorite temple? So it's a, it's a standard Romano Celtic temple. The finds there are so cool. They're absolutely fascinating. Um, all of these gifts that people were giving to the god um, at this temple site, including things like uh, one of the things that was found there were loads and loads of little miniature objects. So about 50 little miniature spears, um, a beautiful miniature sword that was decorated with ivory and bronze and animal horn. Um, all of these miniature, and I just love this, blacksmithing tools. So little miniature hammers and some little miniature anvils and axes and all of these things kind of go into blacksmithing and ironworking. Little tiny miniatures of them, all found in this temple. Um, and evidence again that, you know, in terms of how people were engaging with this temple space, that they were moving around it, and that there was this um, the center of ritual activity seems to have been this pit at the heart of it, where people were depositing um, uh, um, various gifts and kind of lifting up the flagstones and putting things in the pit, including mussel shells, which possibly were being placed there because of the color, right? right? Yeah. So, sort of very kind of careful placement of mussel shells. So, um, and also curse tablets. More curse tablets <laughs> have been course. found from this. Yeah, more. And and once again, it's petty theft. And there's a bit of a there's a bit of a refrain in that one of the one of the tablets is someone stole in my axe and hammer. Um, uh, to the god Bregnius, which is a god that we've never heard of before, but seems to have been the god that was worshipped at this temple. Someone stole in my axe and hammer. Please punish them. Right, and kind of evoking these little miniatures. Um, really hard to know what all of this means, to be honest. I won't sort of lie. A lot of these things are paralleled in other places. Miniature votives are something that we do see at a lot of temples. Um, but one of the things that kind of is recurring in this, in this temple is this idea of kind of ironworking, right, and blacksmithing. And the fact that there is this ironworking area relatively close by. I mean, ironworking, blacksmithing, it's dangerous. Right. And it's something that right from prehistory, we see hedged round with rituals. So whether or not one of the functions of this temple was to kind of provide a space where people were dealing with those right, and kind of 
um, uh, using ritual to kind of control um, the dangers of iron working and their kind of emotions surrounding iron working. This is one possibility. But also I love it because it's a really good example of something that we see an awful lot, which is uh, temples embedded in Roman period activity embedded in a much, much longer history of a landscape, right? And this is a landscape that we see activity right the way through. And we know the Romans, the Roman and British who were using this temple realized that because among the votive objects were in fact Bronze Age and Iron Age artifacts that they clearly had found in the vicinity that they then brought to the god. And that's one of the things that I just love about archaeology is that depth of history in the landscape and the way it all comes together. Gosh, it's absolutely fantastic. Thank you so much, Dr. Ellery Cousins, for sharing all of this with me. You've got me now wanting to go and buy a metal detector and go and help out with uh, looking for some of these finds. <laughs> if you do, don't dig too deep and anything you find, report it to the Port of Art Antiquity Scheme. <laughs> Amazing, thank you so much for joining us. You're very welcome. When our guests join us to talk about their work in their new book, the 45 minutes or so they spend with us is just a taster of all their efforts. So to this end, we have launched our very own bookshop on bookshop.org where you can find our guests' latest and greatest books. You can support them, and you can support History Hack too. 10% of every sale via our bookshop supports the podcast and allows us to keep at it and bring you more amazing guests. You can find our bookshop at bookshop.org forward slash shop forward slash history hack, or just search on bookshop.org for us under the shops bit. Thank you for your continued support, and here's to your next great book. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.